it turned out uh, that was fairly common. I think the numbers in the early days of CubeSats were like 25% of all the CubeSats uh, were essentially dead once they reached space because um, nobody could locate them. Uh, and uh, at the time, the challenge we had was people would come to us after they launched the satellites, after they lost the satellites. And then it was this mad scramble to go find them. And so it was one of those sparks that uh, we said, wow, we need this always on service. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners. On this episode, we've got Dan separately. He was an engineer working at SETI's Anderson Telescope when he realized satellite operators needed a Google Maps type app of their own and that he knew how to build it. Not just the app, but the infrastructure to track trash and debris on orbit as well as the operational satellites. And purely by chance, Dan's journey into entrepreneurship started with a metaphorical dumpster dive into sets of observational data a group of scientists studying the Aurora Borealis were tossing out like trash. Dan is the co-founder and CEO of Leo Labs, a Silicon Valley space startup that's pulled in $100 million in venture capital and has got hard infrastructure on three continents, which are soon to be four, all with the intent to map and monitor traffic in low Earth orbit or LEO. You might now start asking, well, what the heck does he or Leo Labs have to do with defense? Well, when you hear the administration or the Space Force generals talk about space situational awareness or SSA, you know, what stuff is on orbit and where it's going, that's what Leo Labs has been doing with the likes of the Air Force Research Laboratory and other defense branch departments and agencies since 2017. And that was just a year after Dan's aha moment transformed into a company and the object of VCs, or venture capitalists. Dan's story is the business proposition for tracking and cataloging debris, as well as other objects, as small as two centimeters, for the civilian, commercial, and defense space sectors. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the Downlink. Hi, Laura. It's great to be here. You know... As you have a track record of winning pitch contests and venture capital, Leo Labs secured $65 million in new funding in June, and you have had contracts with the Department of Defense. I think DARPA it was. And when Russia conducted its anti-satellite test, Leo Labs was the go-to for everyone interested in following the debris uh, from that event. Could you give us the elevator pitch on what you do and what Leo Labs does? Yeah, absolutely. So we are the commercial mapping platform for space. So if you're flying a satellite around space, we can help you safely navigate that satellite. Or if you depend on space services or you're monitoring or regulating space, we provide that foundational information layer that lets you know what's going on. So we're all about being always on and providing a comprehensive data set, uh, especially the new activities, such as the uh, unfortunate Cosmos 1408 event. Now, you do this through a combination of things. You do this through um, array 
telescopes and you also do this as software as a service. Can you explain, first of all, what is a radio telescope? And then after that, you know, how that plugs into your software? Yeah, absolutely. So we have three technological pillars to the company. Uh, there's the radar network, there's the cloud-based software platform, and then there's the actual information services that our subscribers consume. So with the radars, these are large installations located on the ground that monitor space around the clock. So, you know, during the daytime, you're probably not aware of it, but every hour there are thousands of satellites and pieces of space debris flying over your head. And so our radars continually check on those satellites, those pieces of debris. They check where they're located, where they're going, uh, and then they feed that information up into the cloud. And in the cloud, we look for important situations that are developing, like new debris that might indicate a collision or a breakup, um, or we look up to seven days into the future for potential collisions. Is a satellite going to come dangerously close to a piece of debris or another satellite and the like? Uh, and then we deliver that information in the form of alerts and displays and the like um, as the actual information services that, uh, the, that our subscribers uh, consume. So we're in the process right now of rolling out a global network of these radars. We've got six radars right now spread across four different sites. Uh, we're in the process of building another radar and uh, another radar site. And we've announced a location after that as well. So the uh, sixth radar site. And we're going to keep going after that um, because in order to keep up with the growing traffic in low Earth orbit, we need a worldwide network of these radars that are always on, always monitoring all this new traffic. So what makes LEO Labs different from, let's say, what's already out there? The U.S. Space Force currently offers tracking data for free to satellite operators. Um, they track debris and they, they track satellites as well. You know, what's, what, what makes you different? What's the market you want to capture? And what's the business case? Yeah, so we, we're in business because we're, the industry is in the middle of a second space race. Everything is scaling up rapidly. In the last few years, the number of active satellites in low Earth orbit has gone from a few hundred to a few thousand. So it's approximately a factor of 10 increase. And over the next couple of years, we're expecting a, the number of satellites to go up into the tens of thousands. And it's really rare that you see growth this quickly and kind of with these sorts of numbers. Uh, and so that means there's a, a need for all of the supporting services to grow as well. Uh, and actually you're, you're seeing right now in the space race, this rush to get the infrastructure services in place. And there's about four different sets of infrastructure that we're seeing across the industry. You know, there's the satellite constellations themselves, hundreds, even thousands of satellites now that are delivering broadband internet, safety services for airlines and ships, um, the, the images that feed online mapping platforms, um, just lots of interesting services being used uh, down here on the surface of the earth. Um, the second pillar is the launch services. You know, so last year was actually a record year in terms of the number of launches. Uh, uh, there was one report online that said there were 133 successful launches last year. And in previous years, it was more like 50 or 70 uh, launches. So we're seeing the traffic go way up. And of course, SpaceX with its reusable rockets is, uh, stepped into a whole new arena where they can just keep reflying uh, rockets to get more satellites into space. Um, then the third piece of infrastructure is cloud computing, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, and the like. 
this is a computing infrastructure that space is just starting to, to grab a hold of and use, and it's going to transform the industry. And then finally, there's the mapping services, uh, which is where we play. And providing that foundational set of information to help satellite operators safely navigate their satellites. So there's a few things that we offer that are a bit different. Um, one is we're really focused on tracking the 95% of the risk that's not tracked today. So today there's about 18,000 objects tracked in low Earth orbit. They're all about 10 centimeters or four inches in size and larger. If you look to the smaller stuff down to less than an inch in size, there's about 250,000 pieces of debris that are already up there, already threatening satellites, and we're blind to them. Nobody's tracking them. So it's sort of like if you were driving down a freeway and you were only aware of the trucks and you didn't know about the cars, you didn't know about the motorcycles, can you really consider yourself safe if you're only seeing those trucks? So we're building out the set of services to actually track all the small stuff. Uh, and then secondly, um, we provide a lot of, uh, we provide a, a higher level of service. So responsive, real-time services, detailed analysis, and in particular, transparency. And when we deliver information, we tell you exactly how accurate it is, exactly how trustworthy it is. Um, this isn't broadly done across the industry. And you know, if you're really gonna trust this to protect uh, very expensive satellites, to protect these critical services, you need to know how much you can trust it. And nobody can produce perfect information, perfect data, but the service provider, in my view, has a duty to give you at least an estimate of how good that information is. As you are in the spacecraft and orbital debris tracking business, and knowing that you have degrees in electrical engineering, I wonder, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? I mean, were you always interested in space? Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., so Northern Virginia. I grew up reading National Geographic, and there were a lot of space articles in there, and I always thought they were really interesting. But also, because I, probably because of science fiction, I figured these sort of space missions were fairly routine, these interplanetary missions and the like. And it was only a little bit later, um, as I got older, you know, into my uh, 20s, that I realized just how new this stuff was. It wasn't, uh, you know reading National Geographic was kind of the first time that a lot of these interplanetary missions had been attempted. And the space industry was really moving into a new era. And that made it even more exciting because it's, uh, it wasn't kind of the routine, hey, here's the latest and greatest new pictures. It was, here's the first set of new pictures. Here's the, um, you know, here's the first time we've gone to this planet or the first time we've collected that data. Uh, and that made it even more exciting uh, and, uh, and more compelling. So, but yeah, started out on the East Coast, then uh, moved to California to go to Ber UC Berkeley for grad school, uh, studied electrical engineering, and actually touched on space there. Uh, during my master's degree, I worked with uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab and Ball Aerospace on this satellite called the Terrestrial Planet Finder Coronagraph, trying to look for uh, uh, planets around other stars and uh, ultimately answer the question of, you know, is there life on those other planets? And so um, I made some uh, engineering contributions to that and then ultimately moved off to SRI International, which was uh, kind of that last step before starting Leo Labs. Now, I'd like to travel back in time, which isn't actually all that long ago, to just before you had that aha moment. You know, where were you? What were you working on then? I was at the, uh, the Allen Telescope Array. 
this radio astronomy array in uh, Northern California uh, that was built by the SETI Institute, uh, you know, looking for uh, proof of life on other planets around other stars. But uh, I was working for a firm called SRI International, and we were actually using it to demonstrate satellite tracking and test new satellite tracking technologies uh, and the like. And I was there because actually even as far back as 2008, um, the U.S. Air Force had realized that these new low-cost CubeSats uh, were going to lead to much larger numbers of satellites. And there was this fear that they would overwhelm the space surveillance network and uh, the U.S. didn't have a way to keep up. So they were looking around uh, at what various scientists were doing, private groups were doing and the like, saying, how do we get more tracking capability just so that we're not surprised? as uh, you know, these huge numbers of new satellites come online. Uh, so we were doing some of the research, but we had some CubeSat companies, these new um, commercial companies come to us and say, help, uh, we just launched some new satellites and we've lost them. And that was kind of eye-opening to me. Uh, you know, it, was, uh, it seems kind of crazy that you uh, launch these fancy new satellites into space and they go missing. But it turned out uh, that was fairly common. I think the numbers in the early days of CubeSats were like 25% of all the CubeSats uh, were essentially dead once they reached space because um, nobody could locate them. Uh, and uh, at the time, the challenge we had was people would come to us after they launched the satellites, after they lost the satellites. And then it was this mad scramble to go find them. And so it was one of those sparks that uh, we said, wow, we need this always on service. Uh, just these satellites, these launches should be always tracked so that we can find those uh, satellites and bring them into operations quickly. And in, you know, usually the, the challenge is if you find them quickly, you can turn the satellite on, get it booted up, get the solar panels deployed, and it's just a total non-issue. Um, but if the tracking information is poor, you don't know where to point your antenna, frankly, you, so you don't know how to get in touch with your own satellite. Uh, and so that was the things that um, we set up, one of the big uh, challenges we set out to solve. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that you actually worked with some folks that were looking at the auroras in the polar regions, in the northern polar regions, when you were trying to locate these missing satellites. Yeah, we, uh, it was another funny uh, connection we made that was really critical for the business. Um, yeah, when I was doing the research on how to track satellites, uh, at uh, SRI International, this, this research lab in the San Francisco Bay Area, the folks down the hall, some scientists called me down the hall and they said, hey, you know, you want satellite data. Let us show you our scientific data. Uh, and they had spent um, a couple decades designing and building these radars to be built up above the Arctic Circle, you know, in these harsh environments so that they could study the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis. And then they, when they show me their scientific data, it looked like there was driving rain going through the scientific data, all of these slashes and streaks, and they were all satellites and space debris. And from their point of view, they were all noise. So they'd spent a few years writing software to automatically identify the satellites and the debris and to cut that data out of their scientific data and throw it away. And so another uh, spark went off and it... it um, it was this realization that their trash could be our treasure. They inadvertently built this excellent system for tracking satellites and debris and figured out how to put it in harsh locations and build them rapidly. So we took the technology and the software and the, the people and uh, spun it out of SRI International to create LEO Labs. And that was really the core 
uh, of Leo Labs. So um, we took this scientific uh, capability and uh, turned it into this always-on service, and now we're scaling it up around the world. You know, Leo Labs has attracted about 100 million in venture capital from the likes of Space Capital and Airbus, among others. And Leo Labs is growing. I checked your website. The job offerings there seem to be at least at two dozen openings. What's your current revenue and what's the plan? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, on the revenue front, I uh, got to keep my secrets. Uh, we're a privately held company, so we don't put our revenue notes out there, um, but we are in growth mode. And as you pointed out, uh, middle of last year, uh, around June of 2021, we landed a growth round uh, series B uh, led by Insight Partners to scale up the business. And so the notion is we've now proven the technology, the radars and the software and the data science, uh, and now we need to scale up quickly. So uh, we're hiring. I think we ended uh, last year with about 65 people and we'll be doubling that. Um, we're hiring a lot of data scientists, a lot of software engineers. We're building out both the software platform and the data science, our, the, the data pipeline, uh, and also the global radar network. So our fifth radar site's under construction in the Azores uh, uh, off the coast of Portugal. And we announced another radar site in West Australia near Perth. And we're gonna keep building radars uh, beyond that. And um, in order to keep up with all these new satellites and um, increasing concerns about debris, uh, we've got to scale up our own services too. You've also got a, a radar array in Costa Rica. I mean, you do have a way of picking some pretty fabulous locations. Where are you going next? In terms of the radar network's architecture, it's important to have a few radars in the Northern Hemisphere, a few radars in the Southern Hemisphere and some coverage. Uh, near the equator in order to see satellites freely and make sure you can see um, all the satellites. So a big part of our focus, though, is on covering the southern hemisphere because for historic reasons, it really was not covered at all from a, a space safety, space tracking uh, point of view until we built the radar in New Zealand that we, uh, that we built in 2019. Um, all the other radars that were used uh, for satellite tracking uh, were military in origin and really built during the Cold War. So they were all in the Northern Hemisphere watching for missiles flying over the North Pole. And so that basically left the Southern Hemisphere uh, wide open. So happy to say that with the New Zealand radar, uh, we started to cover that down. Uh, but as um, we announced last year, uh, we'll be building a radar in Australia as well. And uh, we'll, there'll be some more announcements to come. Um, but covering down that Southern Hemisphere is quite important. Is it fair to say then that the greatest threat to all satellites, commercial, civil, and military, is space debris? Is this actually a daily problem or is it, you know, once in a while? You know, there has been criticism that this is being overplayed as well, you know, you've based a business on it. Oh, yes. So space debris is the number one threat to safe operations in space. And surprisingly, 95% of that risk isn't even tracked today. So most of the conversation focuses on what I would call the large stuff, that 10 centimeter or four inch size piece of debris and larger, which includes dead satellites and dead rocket bodies um, and uh, fragments of all those as well. Um, but even something smaller down to an inch in size, if it hits your satellite, it can shatter your satellite. And that's because everything's moving so quickly. 
So everything's going about 17,000 miles an hour. And so even like a little nut or a, a bolt uh, packs so much kinetic energy, it can shatter uh, that satellite, create a cloud of debris, and then that debris can stay up there for a long time. Um, but even looking at the large items, every week we see multiple uh, dead satellites or rocket bodies pass dangerously close to one another. Um, so you'll see our, our senior technical fellow, Darren McKnight, uh, talks a lot about these large derelicts, meaning large derelict satellites or dead rocket bodies. And when two of those collide, it's gonna be a horrible day in space because they're so big that when they're smashed into a, a lot of bits, they create a lot of pieces, a lot of small fragments. And every week we see a few of them pass you know, within tens of meters of one another. So it's sort of a ticking time bomb. It's only a matter of time until we see one of those collisions. And then we've got a new cloud of debris that we've got to deal with for years. Uh, speaking about clouds of debris, tell me about the moment you heard that Russia launched an ASAT an anti-satellite test and destroyed their defunct Cosmos 1408. I mean, where were you? What, what time was it? What were you doing? And what was the first thing that you and Leo Labs did? Yeah, that was a bad day. I, uh, no, middle of November. So I actually woke up to, uh, to messages on Slack. The team was already chattering that uh, there appeared to have been an event in space. And uh, at that time, basically what had happened was there was this large piece of debris, Cosmos 1408, this dead Russian satellite or dead Soviet satellite actually launched uh, decades ago. Generally, a, a big dead satellite like that, we reliably track it a few times a day. So it passes over a radar, we see it, we update the orbit it's in and we kind of move on. Um, but it had gone missing. So there were a couple radar passes where we didn't see it. And so we started searching a larger region of space around the satellite and uh, found six new objects, basically six new fragments, which is not normal. And uh, so that was the immediate implication or the immediate indication that something had happened. Uh, I believe the kind of first indications there were, were picked up in New Zealand with the, the Kiwi space radar. Uh, within an hour or so, we got more data when it passed over the Costa Rica space radar. And that's when we started realizing there were tens, probably hundreds of new pieces of debris. And this was going to be a large event. I personally, the, the timing was kind of crazy because I was a few hours from getting on stage in Las Vegas at this space industry conference, the uh, AIAASN conference to talk about space debris. Uh, there was a panel of a few people uh, convened to talk about space debris. And you know, so in the couple hours before that panel started, the first data was flowing off the radar. We're getting the first looks at all this new debris and really trying to decide what had happened. And at that time, a couple of reporters had gotten rumors that uh, Russia had conducted an anti-satellite weapons test, but it, it hadn't been confirmed. And certainly the Russians hadn't said anything. So when we were on stage, you know, we were talking about the facts. We were talking about the amount of debris that we'd seen and how unique this event was. But there were rightly a lot of questions about kind of the geopolitics and the intent behind it. And um, we just didn't have any information at that time about those topics. Well, now that we know that that was a military uh, test of a weapon system, is the United States Department of Defense investing as it should in commercial space traffic management? 
such as contracting with commercial organizations. Last autumn, there was criticism that it was talking the talk, but not yet walking the walk. And since then, the U.S. Space Council in November zeroed in on space debris, and it was a question lawmakers posed as recently as last week to U.S. Space Force Chief uh, Jay Raymond. What do, you, what do you think? What do you see? Yeah, there's kind of two big themes that run through my mind here. The first is space traffic management is really splitting off into its own separate mission area that's, that's not defense. Um, and the second is... Uh, I'm not sure there's a, a good enough appreciation for just how quickly space is scaling up and how much of a strategic surprise that could be. So, you know, in terms of the um, space traffic management issue, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Department of Commerce uh, needing to be the regulatory body to pick up space traffic management and the Department of Defense wanting to hand that off. Um, and frankly, I think it is the right thing for a regulator to pick up that topic. You know, the interesting thing is there's never actually been a space traffic safety service. You know, if you listen to the Department of Defense talk, they offer a space traffic awareness service. They will put out alerts, they will put out information, but they have no way to write guidelines or policies that are binding for satellite operators to follow to, um, you know, to really drive space traffic safety to a new set of norms. You know, so we've stepped into that uh, that void, we now offer a collision avoidance service and where we actually put out detailed um, information. Um, we provide uh, interactive services so satellite operators can plan out their maneuvers, how they're going to respond. Um, and so that's really the basis, the kind of day-to-day operational basis of space traffic management. We provide that operational layer. Um, but there is a need for really a policy perspective. So uh, a regulator to keep eyes on space and decide what uh, level of safety is acceptable and what's not acceptable, and also to be positioned to respond to the next big accident. You know, we need somebody who's very well informed who can carefully change the uh, the space traffic safety rules without completely upending the industry. And I'm happy to say, you know, we've been working with the New Zealand Space Agency for a number of years now. They're actually the first regulator in the world. Uh, that is proactively monitoring what satellites are doing in space after they've been launched. And they're using our services for that. And that really puts them in the driver's seat to, to be the global leader for defining new norms, um, new ways to um, protect the space environment. Um, the second thing, though, uh, the kind of rapid scale out of space, I think that's, um, that's something that's not adequately appreciated that, you know, space had been kind of quiet for uh, a few decades and there wasn't, say, a big need to build more radars, build more telescopes and the like. But we're now shifting into this new world where there's lots of new satellites. Constellation sizes are larger than they've ever been before. It's now normal for a company to be or a country to be flying hundreds of satellites, if not thousands of satellites. Uh, and so there's this need for this new architecture that scales up quickly quickly build more radars, quickly uh, expand the software capabilities to process all of that data. You know, that's the whole reason Leo Labs was in business. I'd spent a number of years doing R&D for the U.S. government because the research community was asking, how do we scale up quickly? We're going to need to. And the normal procedures, the normal acquisition process couldn't keep up. You know, it's a process that generally takes decades to identify the problem, study it to death, uh, start proto, you know, prototype solutions, eventually build out solutions. 
And that sort of timeline doesn't work when you're going through this massive disruption like the space industry is going through. The reason Leo Labs stepped out and took venture capital was so we could move really quickly. Uh, our big push is to work with everybody operationally to, to say, how do you operationally incorporate commercial services into your mission area? And since these sorts of commercial services, commercial radar services have never been available before, uh, it can be kind of a heavy lift to figure out uh, how do you rely on these sort of services and how do you use them to rapidly extend um, maybe the core capabilities that, um, that you already have, but uh, are not scaling up to keep up with the, the new space environment. You know, space is a big place. But Don Kessler, you know, the astrophysicist who first argued that space debris was a serious problem back in the 70s, you know, he told me that he thinks we've passed a tipping point in the amount of debris that's that's up there. What do you think? I think, you know, we're probably at a tipping point of at least perception, uh, public perception. It's hard for me to say whether we're at a tipping point of kind of runaway debris creation. I don't think we're there quite yet. Um, but in terms of perception, I think it's quite important. You know, nobody's cared about space debris more than they, than they are right now. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that we have a huge amount of critical infrastructure in space now, and that uh, the amount is only going up. In a way, it's, it's like hurricanes, that there's been hurricanes for all of history, you know, and, and they've been causing havoc and destruction, but we've never cared more about hurricanes than we do now because the coastlines are so built up. There's lots of people living on the coastlines. There's lots of infrastructure. So when a hurricane comes through, it destroys a lot of what we've built. Same thing with space debris and collisions that nowadays when there's a collision, when there's new debris created, it threatens a huge amount of expensive infrastructure that's delivering critical services. Uh, and so Luckily, we're seeing a lot of attention in the right places to, um, to try to address the problem. And, you know, when it comes to space debris, there's really three things you can do. You can avoid creating it in the first place. You can swerve and avoid it so that you don't have collisions. Uh, and then you can go and clean it up. And uh, the first two uh, are being very actively pursued. So making sh the first, you know, making sure we're not creating new debris. That goes to better spacecraft construction, better rocket construction getting satellites out of space at the end of their mission, stuff like that. The swerve and avoid is obviously what um, Leo Labs does. So putting out alerts so that satellite operators can move around a collision. Uh, and then the last piece, cleaning up space, we're just at the beginning of it. There's just been a couple mission uh, demonstration missions showing how you grab a piece of dead debris or a satellite. And we really need to invest in that and make it a routine part of uh, the toolkit for the industry. Uh, and I think at Leo Labs, we're, we have a big uh, role to play in that, in particular, identifying which pieces of debris are the riskiest, um, which ones need to be removed. So there's kind of this common misperception that one of the riskiest things is two active satellites co potentially colliding with one another. You see some stories in the media every so often about one satellite operator satellites coming close to another satellite operator satellites or a space agency satellites. That's actually pretty rare and it's pretty straightforward to handle. You know, the two organizations need to talk to one another to plan out the response. The tougher thing is actually the, the debris and swerving around the dead debris. So, you know, I think we can put a lot more satellites into space, 
if we're managing that debris. And the best analogy I've heard is it's sort of like a marching band at halftime in a football game. You know, you can put a lot of marching band players out on the field and they don't run into each other because they're highly coordinated. You know, they're moving past one another and they're spinning and twirling. Nothing goes wrong. That's like the satellite constellations today. The problem happens when the drunken fan goes running across the field and, you know, runs into the tuba player. Um, that drunken fan is, is basically the piece of debris. And there are a number of large derelict satellites that are slowly drifting downwards through the altitudes that are used by the, the new satellite operators. And uh, we would do a big favor to the space industry if we could get rid of some of those big dead satellites so that they didn't have to swerve around them and you know, face that risk of collision. Uh, so I think, uh, so I think the, the problem is uh, deserving of a whole lot more uh, attention and investment because um, we're investing so heavily in space technology and, and satellites in this second space race. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And if you did, why not subscribe or even share it? The downlink is available on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and SoundCloud. In the meantime, be sure to check the Defense and Aerospace Report for the latest defense news and insights brought to you by Vaga Maradian, who is the editor for all of the Deaf Air Report podcasts. And check out Cavus Ships, which is our weekly podcast about the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and have a great week. <laughs>